Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The question, the very last sentence, but what will you do in the end? Boy, that's such a a thought-provoking question. You know, people want to do their own thing. They want to have it their way. But what do you do in the end? And what do you do when it all starts falling apart? What do you do when it all starts unraveling? It's a whole other story then. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Jeremiah chapters 1 through 6. Now here's Pastor Brian. So what are you offering in exchange for faith in God? And man, when they, if they do get around to explaining to you what they're offering, it's like, are you kidding me? Why would I want that? Why would I want a a perspective on the world that's as dark and dismal and hopeless as the one that you have derived from your great understanding now that you've moved away from the fountain of living water. No, uh, no thanks. I'll stick with the fountain of living water myself because what you've done is you've just hewn out a cistern that can hold no water. There's nothing there that offers anything to anybody. And, you know, you think of even today, you know, with what the things that are going on in the culture and, uh, you know, all of the different riots and, you know, people protesting this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, a good question is like, okay, so what's the alternative? What are you offering as an alternative? You obviously hate this. So what are you going to replace this with? And boy, you listen to what they want to replace it with. And you think, holy smokes, you think that's a better option? All of these philosophies, all these ideas, anything that originates with human beings who have rejected God or apart from God, again, maybe I'm just overly simplistic these days, but to me, it's like, hey, that is a cistern that is broken and it cannot hold water and it's never going to refresh me. It's never going to satisfy me. I, I drank from those broken cisterns. That's how partially how I became a Christian because I realized there's nothing in these things. And so the thought of returning to that, but that's what Israel did. They did the unthinkable. They left the true God and they left him for nothing that could ever profit them. And so as we go on in the second chapter, he speaks of the fact that he's going to correct them. Verse 19, he says, your own wickedness will correct you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Over in verse 26 As a thief is ashamed when he is found out, so the house of Israel ashamed they and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. They say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. So God's just speaking of the utter senselessness of their going after these idols, these things that cannot profit or help their, you know, their a block of wood and a piece of stone. So he goes on 
And with his indictment further, verse 31, O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And so the situation in Judah was just simply that the nation, as you know, the nation was built by God. It was built because of God's favor, his blessing, his saving them out of Egypt, his setting them apart. And now they've just completely abandoned their trust in him and they're living their lives as though he didn't matter in the least. And that's the complaint. Now, in the third chapter, he goes on, and here he speaks of their the shamelessness. So he speaks of them, and here he uses the language here of harlotry. Look in um, verse one here. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not the land be greatly polluted? This was forbidden in uh, the law, Deuteronomy 24. But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. So here's the amazing love of God. Even though Israel has played the harlot with many lovers, the Lord is still offering to take Israel back. Verse 12, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. Verse 14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with the knowledge, with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. So as we saw, remember maybe as we were going through Isaiah, we see, we see this similar thing. Again, I will punish, but I will restore. So God's talking about he's going to punish them, but now he's promising that he is actually going to restore them as well. And so verse 22, return you backsliding children and I will heal your backsliding. Indeed, we do come to you for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills, from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So this is the future. This is when they come to their senses. And now in the fourth chapter, speaking here of this grief that I mentioned earlier, where over in verse 19 of chapter four, it says, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because 
You have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered, my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, for they have not known me. So as you're reading that from verse 19 down through verse 21, it easily could be Jeremiah saying these things, and it seems like Jeremiah is saying these things. But then when you come to verse 22, for my people are foolish, they have not known me. Jeremiah's not saying that. The Lord's saying that. So as I said, as Jeremiah is expressing the grief, he's, he's actually expressing the very heart of God. You know, I don't know that we think about this that often, but it's something that we really should think about. You know, sometimes when we think about a backslidden person or something like that, I, I think, and even if we happen to be in a backslidden state, the first thing I think most of the time people think is they think about the anger of God. They think that God is, is, is so upset with my state. And that could be true, but we should think first about the grief of God. Because before God is angry, he's grieved. But a lot of times we don't, we don't really think about that, do we? We don't think of God in a way that, that we understand that he actually has the capacity to be grieved, that he can be saddened, that when he looks at a backslidden child, rather than just, oh, I'm so angry at this ungrateful child. I just want to pour out my judgment upon them. That is not God's first response. I don't even know if it's his 10th response. His first response is grief. Remember in the New Testament, in Ephesians, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So this is an expression of God's grief that we're reading about in these verses. For my people are foolish, they have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. In the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So here he's looking into the future. This is what is coming. This is the judgment that will come because of the continual rebellion against God. And now over into the fifth chapter here, speaking of the justice of God's judgment. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. So this is serious. God says, if you can find a single person 
that's righteous, I'll spare this city. But it wasn't possible. The Lord says, they say as the Lord lives. In other words, like Jesus said to the Pharisees in his day, he said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And that was the state of the people at this time. And so the Lord declares that he's going to deal with them. But then in verse 18, coming back from the I will punish now to the I will restore. Look at verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. So God's going to judge them. He's going to judge them severely, but he's not going to completely destroy them. And that, of course, has been the case. We've seen that historically with that nation. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Uh, Look at verse 22. This is an interesting verse here. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass. God is just appealing to them on the grounds of, okay, think about this. I am the one who set the boundaries for the sea. It's almost like the Lord saying, look, do you know who you're playing with here? Do you know who you're messing with? I mean, you know, this is a a question that many people should be confronted with. And, And, you know, isn't it interesting? Of course, speaking generally of just humankind, you know, there's the idea that we're so independent and free and autonomous. And of course, we don't need God and who there is no God and all of this sort of stuff. But man, let the earth start shaking a little bit under our feet. Let the place start burning down. And, you know, those kinds of things, let those things start happening. And people are all of a sudden really quickly starting to ask questions like, hey, well, what's going on? Yeah, that's a good question. What's going on? The fear of the Lord. Just look out at the ocean and ask yourself the question, how come it never goes any further? How come, how come Santa Ana's not 50 feet deep in water? It's because God has set the boundary. He said he set the boundary on the seas. And they can't go beyond, and that's generally the case, right? Unless there's some typhoon or some sort of tsunami or something like that, that, that is... It's a fixed situation, and God is claiming that he's the one who has said it so. And so he says in verse 25, your iniquities have turned away my blessing. Your sins have withheld good from you. And then verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. Here it is. The prophets prophesy falsely, And the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. Wow, that's the indictment. The prophets prophesy falsely. The 
priests ruled by their own power. Now, you know, when we look at these prophetic books, of course, the immediate context is history. It's happened in the past, as we know. We're looking back to that period of time that we talked about. But these kinds of things have been, you know, they've been repeated in, in some ways over and over again all throughout history. And we can be really tempted when we're looking at this to, to look at a parallel to everything today. And there's some basis for doing that. We, we can do that. But we have to always remember that Israel and Judah had a very unique situation with God that no one else has ever had before or since. And that is that they were literally a, a nation under God. We, some people say our money says in God we trust and our Pledge of Allegiance says one nation under God. And that is highly debatable <laughs> whether that is the case. I would say that's not the case, uh, even though it's, it's the sentiment of some, but it's not the sentiment of the majority. But even if we said that, it's not like it was for Israel. It's, they, it's just a completely unique situation. They are what is called a theocracy. They are directly under the rule of God. So something that would be closer to what they had than looking at the United States of America, for example, as being that, something that would be closer would be the church itself, the church collectively. Because the church is, according to Peter, the church is a holy nation. The church is a nation in and of itself. And the church is a nation under God. So when we look at these kinds of things, the place where we probably should look for more of the application than looking just at the, the nation, although, again, it could have application there. But we ought to be looking at the church and see where we see the parallels. And I think when it says the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so, believe it or not, that could describe a large section of what is called the church not just in this country, but in other places as well. So that's where we see the, the application can come just directly home when we see it that way. Uh, but the question, the very last sentence, but what will you do in the end? Boy, that's such a, such a, a thought-provoking question. You know, people want to do their own thing. They want to have it their way. But what do you do in the end? And what do you do when it all starts falling apart? What do you do when it all starts unraveling? It's a whole other story then. And at this stage in the history of Judah, they just thought, that's impossible. That'll never happen. We are so secure. We are prosperous. We have been around for such a long time. We've weathered so many things. And there's no way that the kind of stuff that Jeremiah is talking about is ever really going to happen to us. But they were fooling themselves. So really quickly, the sixth chapter, the impending destruction that's coming from the north. So this is the, the prophecy about where he starts to, to clarify to them that it's going to be Babylon that is going to come. But let me pick up in verse 10. There's just a few verses here in chapter 6 that we'll look at and then we're done. But in verse 10, 
the Lord says, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. Their ear is uncircumcised. And he's going to talk here about the uncircumcised heart as well. So the point is, these are people that hear the word, like Jesus said, hearing you will hear, but not understand. Seeing you will see, but not perceive. Why? Because this people's heart has grown cold. And so that's why Jeremiah at a point as we move on is going to call for the circumcision of the heart so they can actually have their heart softened so they can be able to hear. But verse 13, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given. This is just a description of the society at the time. Everyone is given to covetousness and from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the herd of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And this is always the false prophets are always saying, hey, it's fine. It's not a problem. Don't worry about it. God is love. You don't have to think about repenting or any of that. It's all going to be good. That's what they were doing in Jeremiah's day. And so thus says the Lord, verse 16, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. So he's calling them back to the way it should be, calling them back to the scriptures and being obedient to the scripture. And then finally, at the very end, the Lord says that uh, to Jeremiah, he says, I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among the people that you may know and test their way. So God is using Jeremiah. Jeremiah is there like an assayer. He's, he's evaluating the situation. And their response to Jeremiah as God's servant is revealing the condition of their own hearts. So they are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. Bronze and iron. The idea is that they are so hardened, they are impenetrable. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. And so there we have it. So we'll go into the seventh chapter. And we're going to see as we go further on, things are going to become more and more challenging for Jeremiah because God's going to call him to do. uh, Let me just say this too in, in closing. Jeremiah was undoubtedly one of the most courageous human beings that ever lived. Because the stuff that God called him to do, I mean, he literally was putting his life on the line every time he went out in public and opened his mouth. But he, he faithfully did it. And um, in the end, he was proven to be right. For the month of September, 
Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller. With so much social, cultural, and relational unrest, all of us need to forgive or be forgiven in either small or significant ways. Have you ever found it difficult to forgive someone for a wrong they committed against you? What if that person never apologized? How can you forgive someone who hasn't even acknowledged they have done something wrong? In his book, Forgive, Timothy Keller lays out the path of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation rather than the path of unforgiveness that can lead towards retaliation. You'll learn about the power of forgiveness that can bring freedom both to the one who forgives and the one who has been forgiven. We are living in a time where forgiveness is desperately needed. If you're struggling with forgiveness or even guilt, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I by Timothy Keller is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Jeremiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.